how you feel. For many of us, Easter is a familiar annual event. We come to church, we sing songs, we hear a familiar message that reminds us of the importance of Jesus rising from the dead. We recommit to spending time in prayer and reading our Bible. Sometimes Easter for Christians can almost be like New Year's Day for non-Christians where you kind of restock and you remind yourself of the importance of the spiritual disciplines that you do. For many of us, though, resurrection messages are messages that we've heard countless times. There can be a, a familiarity with this, sometimes a certain formula. For some of us, we may come to church rarely, but we choose to come on Sundays like Easter. It's possible today that this message will not be different than what you've heard countless times already. But I can say that there's so much more to the crucifixion and resurrection. And my hope today is to highlight some of those things. Today we're going to look at the implications of the cross and the resurrection. And to understand what's happening, we must remember three words that I told this church, my church, last week. Is that God is intentional. To truly understand what's happening at the crucifixion, what Jesus has done, and at the resurrection, we have to see these moments as intentional activities across the boardwalk. Now, when I say that God is intentional, I'm not saying it just to say it. Jesus, in John 12, beginning in verse 49, this is what Jesus said. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that everything that I say, and by implication, everything that I do is intentional. It is a command of the Father. Jesus does not say anything random. He doesn't say things out of order. He says what the Father commanded him to do. He does what the Father commanded him to do. God is intentional. Nothing is random. Nothing is by accident. With that in mind, let's begin. If someone were to ask you, why did Jesus die on the cross? Many of you would say something like this, to forgive us of our sin, to pay the debt, if you want to get real theological, to satisfy the Father's wrath and pay the debt, right? You get into all those different things. But fundamentally, fundamentally, you would say to save us for our sins. And that would be absolutely true, but it would be incomplete. It would be incomplete. It would prioritize us more than I think we should. So let's ask this question instead. Why did Jesus think he was dying on the cross? Why did Jesus think he was dying on the cross? Let's look at John 12. Remember, God is intentional. Beginning in verse 27. Here are Jesus' words, and I quote, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. 
Now, time doesn't permit me to explain the significance, but there are only three times that the audible voice of God the Father is heard. Three times in the Gospels. The first at the beginning of his ministry when he's baptized. The second when he reveals his true identity at the transfiguration. And the third right here. That means something, that the Father is expressing his voice. So what Jesus is about to say and do is so significant that the Father said, let me add my voice to this situation. Here's what Jesus says, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So why did Jesus think he was going to die? What did he say? Verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. What makes this statement interesting is that minutes after Jesus said this in the same scene, he says this in verse 47 of John 12. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, to save them. Well, wait a minute. If I'm there, I'm just dumb like this. I'm just going to be like, I'm sorry, Jesus, I don't mean to interrupt you. I'm not going to be like, Kanye, I'm sorry. Taylor, hold on. <laughs> Jesus, I don't mean to interrupt you, but you just said, now is the judgment of this world. What do you mean you're not going to judge? You didn't come to judge the world, but to save it. You just said now is the judgment of this world. Can you clarify, please? What's happening here? Well, there are two worlds in Jesus' mind. The one that belongs to Satan and the world that is humanity. And when he says, now is the judgment of this world, now the ruler of this world will be cast out, he's talking about something very specific. Jesus is acknowledging that he's bringing us back to Genesis 3.15. If you remember, after sin comes into the world, God says to Satan in verse 15 of Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And from that moment on, the rest of human history is waiting to find out, well, who is this he? Who is the he that's going to bruise the heel? Jesus is saying, now is the time. The ruler of this world will be cast out. Jesus understood that I am coming to die to overthrow Satan, the ruler of this world. That's the reason. And the result of him doing that is our salvation. Hebrews 2 tells us this, beginning in verse 14. Since therefore the children, humanity, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is what he means. All these people that are trying to do good works because they're afraid of what's going to happen when they die, Jesus said, uh-uh, I'm going to do the good work, and so when you die, you have nothing to be afraid of. So there's no genuine Christian in this room that should be afraid to die. Sure, there are things that are unknown. What's the process? What's it like? Am I going to see my life flash before me? Are there going to be angels waiting for me? Am I just going to take a long nap? Is that, you know, all we know is Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. That's good enough for me. He says, for surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. 1 John 3, 8 says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. The devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
for Jesus, the reason he's dying is first and foremost to overthrow the works of the devil. Now, why is this important? Because many of us process his death primarily through us. He came to die on the cross for us, and that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But it can be a little too man-centered. You see, the reason why we're saved is because he overthrew the works of the devil. If he didn't overthrow the works of the devil, then our salvation wouldn't matter. Remember, God is intentional. Everything Jesus says is commandment. So for Jesus, his dying on the cross is first and foremost to overthrow the works of the devil. John 8, 3, 8, this is why he appears. For Jesus, his death was the dominant act of spiritual warfare. He understood that what I'm about to do on the cross is for all of the evil that if you're a member of this church that we've been hearing about in the supernatural storyline, all of that we're talking about, all is connected to that moment. Jesus is saying, okay, this is the moment. The rule of this world will be cast out. And when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus validates that the cross is first and foremost about defeating Satan. And as a result, mankind's, our sins are forgiven. But how is the ruler of this world cast out when if we're honest, we see nothing but his rule everywhere? I just see evil all over the place. You can scroll your Twitter feed for like two minutes and be like, oh. <laughs> evil seems to be winning. So how is the ruler of this world cast out? And what does that have to do with Jesus dying on a cross? A few minutes ago, I asked the question, why did Jesus die on the cross? Let me ask it this way. Why did Jesus die on a cross? Why did he die on a cross? Last week, for those who were members of the church, I alluded to this, that according to Jewish law, Jesus should have been stoned to death for claiming to be equal with God. That was, it was called blasphemy. The, 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 the penalty for blasphemy is to pick up stones and kill the person. Here's what John 10, beginning of verse 27, tells us. Jesus is speaking to the, to the religious leaders, and he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones and again to stone him. So you see, in their minds, it was like, we, we can kill him. Jesus answered, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him. It's not for good works that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself equal to God. So according to Jewish law, they should have thrown rocks at Jesus and stoned him. Even Pilate, when they were asking Pilate to kill him, Pilate said, you do it. You, according to your law, you kill him. Why do I need to kill him? What they didn't know and what Pilate didn't know is that Pilate had to agree to kill him because Jesus had to die on the cross. But why? Why couldn't he have been stoned and then rose from the dead that way? It would have still been miraculous. He could have died in any way, rose from the dead. We'd still be singing the same songs we sang today. Why did Jesus have to die on a cross? Last week, I said to understand, you know, the week of Jesus' death is called the Passion Week. 
That's why the movie that Mel Gibson did was called The Passion of the Christ, right? The Passion Week is this term that's used from the Sunday with Jesus rising on a donkey to he dies on the cross. And I said that to understand the Passion Week, we have to understand Creation Week. That in day one of creation, God said, let there be light, and light overthrows darkness. And day one of the Passion Week, Jesus, the light of the world, is riding on a donkey to Jerusalem to overthrow darkness. In day six of creation week, God gives breath to humanity from his spirit. In day six of the Passion Week, Jesus breathes his last breath for humanity and gives up his spirit. These weeks parallel, and they're intentional. The pattern is intentional. But the cross and the resurrection are doing something else. God is directly targeting the rebellion of what happened in Genesis 3. But how does Jesus dying on a cross target that rebellion? Well, let's look back quickly at Genesis 3 and remind ourselves of what actually happened. Beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is what God is targeting. But how does Jesus die on the cross target this? Well, first, what is a cross? It's a Roman instrument of death. Torture. But it's also wooden. And wood comes from trees. Acts 5:30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Galatians 3:13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 1 Peter 2:24. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So the cross is a tree. Some of you see where this is going. But how does Jesus dying on a cross, hanging from a tree, overturn what happened in Genesis 3? Well, how did sin come into the world? So Adam and Eve take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they bite, and they eat. Now keep in mind that God has already explained what good and evil was because he defines what good and evil are. God is the knowledge of good and evil, which is why Satan said you will be like God when you bite it. Now, we know that the cross is necessary because Jesus said, it said in John 12, and when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then John added, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus is equating dying on the cross to overturning Satan. And we know that the cross is a tree. Sin comes into the world by taking the knowledge of good and evil from the tree so how does Jesus undo this? Well, Jesus is good and evil. And so to undo what Satan did, God puts good and evil back on the tree. Jesus is the knowledge of good and evil. He's the epitome of it. He invented the tree. He is knowledge of good and evil. 
to undo what happened in the garden, they take fruit from the tree. So God says, we're putting good and evil back on the tree where it belongs. Jesus is literally reversing what happened in Genesis 3. So Jesus says, when I'm lifted up on a tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Do you know fruit usually means two things in the Bible? Fruit usually, it's literal, well, three things. Literal can be a fruit. But fruit also means character, right? It means character, wisdom, righteousness. That's what fruit is. So Jesus is righteousness in human form. He's the fruit. So God put the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil back on the tree. This is why if you're a Christian, some of the Christianese language we use is to see fruit in your life. This is why in the New Testament, especially in the letters, you see the language of bear fruit. All of a sudden, all the language of maturity for the church is to bear fruit. The knowledge of good and evil is put back on the tree. Keep in mind who Jesus also is. 1 Corinthians 15, 45, 49 tells us, thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first Adam, the last Adam, he's the second Adam. So in the garden, Adam eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that his wife took down. On the cross, the second Adam puts the fruit back on the tree. God is literally reversing everything that happened in Genesis in the Garden of Eden, remember that Adam and Eve were prohibited from eating from the tree of everlasting life. You may remember these words from Genesis 3, 22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which it was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So in Genesis 3, they take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they're kept from the tree of everlasting life. But Jesus is everlasting life. And Jesus, the knowledge of good and evil, the second Adam, is put back on the tree to show how intentional God is. In the crucifixion, they put your legs on top of each other. They spread out your arms and put nails in them, and they hoist you up. If you were looking at Jesus' body, it would resemble a tree. His arm, the branches spread out. His legs on top of each other, thick like the trunk of a tree. He's everlasting life. He's the knowledge of good and evil. And he's there. 
God is taking every element from Genesis 3 and recreating it on the cross and undoing everything that brought sin into the world. This is why Jesus had to die on the cross. Not only is he dying on a tree, but his body resembles a tree. And Jesus knew this. In John 15, he said, look, I'm the vine, you're the branches. I'm the root. If time permitted, there's a lot we could talk about. We talked about palm trees last Sunday. There's a lot that wasn't said about palm trees and what palm trees represent in the Old Testament. At the crucifixion, even the tree of life, of everlasting life, is represented. But now people aren't kept away from it. There are no supernatural beings keeping humanity from the tree. There's a supernatural being saying you are welcome now to come to this tree and enjoy everlasting life. Analogically, we're allowed to eat from the tree of everlasting life that we couldn't eat from in Genesis 3. How do we eat from the tree? What do you think communion is? That's a manifestation. We treat that as if it reminds us of his body that was broken, his blood that was shed for us. Jesus is the tree of everlasting life. We are preparing every time we do communion to eat from that tree in Revelation 22. Communion is intentional. God is intentional. But there's something missing. This scene isn't complete yet. This is the crucifixion. Most of the elements are there. But there are some things that are missing. And this is where the resurrection comes in. These are one event and the other. We separate them as two. They're one and the same to God. You cannot have the cross without the resurrection. So for God, this is an event. For us, it's two separate things. For God, this is my will, my plan, my intentionality. It's one thing. It accomplishes one purpose. The cross and resurrection are primarily reversing the effects of Genesis 3. Now, with the cross, it's easier to see that. But how is God reversing the rebellion of Genesis 3 at the resurrection? How does that happen? Because resurrection is the first day of the week. It's a new week. It's essentially the recreation. So how does that reverse the effects of Genesis 3? What's missing? Well, to understand that, we have to ask this question. Why did Jesus appear to Mary Magdalene instead of the disciples? Have you ever wondered that? Why did Jesus appear to Mary Magdalene instead of the disciples? I mean, you would think that that's the first people that would see Jesus. Why did he appear to Mary Magdalene? In John 20, Here's what we read, beginning in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead, 
Then the disciples returned to their home. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, I love that he does this. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him in Aramaic, said, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things, to he said these things to her. Why didn't Jesus appear to Peter and John? Those are the two disciples who were there at the transfiguration, along with his brother James. Jesus could have appeared to them and been like, why did he appear to Mary instead of his disciples? Anyone who understands ancient Near East history and Jewish customs or the way women were perceived in that time period in humanity would rightly say women were not credible witnesses to men. And it was definitely a man's world in that day and age. In fact, Luke 24, 10 and 11 tells us this. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Because of this, some people have concluded that the reason Jesus appeared to Mary was to make the reality of his resurrection more believable. In fact, Logos wrote an article, and this is an excerpt of that article. Logos is one of the most popular Bible softwares that I use it all the time. Here's what the article says. The main argument posted for the historicity of the appearance to the women and the empty tomb for that matter is that early Christians would not have invented the story since the low view of women in first century Mediterranean society would raise problems of credibility. Bauckham provides evidence that in the Greco-Roman world, educated men regarded women as gullible in religious matters and especially prone to superstitious fantasies and excessive in religious practices. Precisely because of the, the low view of women in antiquity, many see the appearance of the, to the women and to Mary Magdalene especially as historical Given the criterion of embarrassment, it seems unlikely that the evangelists, especially Mark, would either invent or adjust existing testimonies to make the women the first witnesses of the risen Jesus if that's not what was remembered in the earliest traditions. Why fabricate a report of Jesus' resurrection that already would have been difficult for many to believe and compound that difficulty by adding women as the first witnesses? Most people conclude that this is why he appeared to Mary Magdalene. And there's truth to this logic and perspective. And in the natural storyline, I might have used the same logic to show the validity of the resurrection really happened. But in the supernatural storyline, something else is going on here. Something else is going on here. That may be part of it, but truth be told, Jesus doesn't need the credibility of anybody to make his story real. He's God. He, he can make people believe it if he wants to. <laughs> Let's look closely at the events of the resurrection, starting with where Jesus was buried. John 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate, that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, 
came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there in a tomb in a garden. So when Jesus resurrects from the dead, he's in a garden. In Genesis 3, we have the rebellion in a garden. In John 20, we have the redemption in a garden. Sin comes into the world in a garden. Salvation coming to the world in a garden. God is intentional. In Genesis 3, we have the man and woman, Adam and Eve, in the garden. In John 20, we have the second Adam with the woman in the garden. God is intentional. In Genesis 3, we have the main conversation that we see between the woman and the enemy of God. In John 20, the main conversation is between a woman and the enemy of God's enemy. In Genesis 3, the woman listens to the instruction of Satan and leads the man in rebellion. In John 20, the woman listens to the instruction of God and leads the men to redemption. God is intentional. He doesn't need the credibility of women. He is reversing everything that happened in Genesis 3, and by doing so, allowing Mary to be the one to meet him, he is redeeming the woman. In Genesis 3, supernatural beings are there to protect the tree and stop from everlasting life. In John 20, supernatural beings are telling them you can have everlasting life. God is intentional. So what is the resurrection? It is a recreation of Genesis 3, but done correctly. The woman listens to the knowledge of good and evil and goes to tell the man that redemption is here. God is reversing what happened in the garden. In Genesis 3, the woman was the first to participate in the rebellion. Eve bit the fruit first. In John 20, the woman is the first to participate in the redemption. The cross and resurrection are literally, literally, down to the detail, undoing, reversing. It is the recreation. It's the recreation of God's people. And that's why we're called in the New Testament a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, 
If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, just like when Jesus came, it doesn't look like the new has come and the old has passed away. And sometimes in our lives, it doesn't look like we're a new creation and the old has passed away. But God has reversed the curse on everyone who believes in Jesus. Now think for a second about this. If God is so meticulously intentional that from Genesis 3.15 for thousands of years to exactly, literally undo all of that, if he has that intentional of a plan for the world, then how does he not have an intention for your world? So God will do all of this and carry this Genesis 3.15 prophetic judgment that your Satan, your head will be bruised. And then 5,000 years later, it comes to pass and undoes exactly what happens. If that God can do that in the world, then he can't do something in your world? If for no other reason we can trust God because of how intentional and specific he is. God didn't do this just for the world and somehow our lives are random acts of things that we either like or don't like. We may not understand. In fact, we know this from the Gospels that there are plenty of times that we got to remember when we read the Gospels, these dudes were not figuring this out as it happened. The Gospels are not written down while it's happening. These dudes are writing about this decades later and it's finally hitting them. Duh. Oh, that's, that's why he said that. We're reading from the guys who were with Jesus, who at the time, Jesus would be like, are you still so dough? So you don't understand about the five loaves and the two fish? So I fed 12,000 people and you think we're going to die on a boat? He was like, couldn't figure it out. When Jesus, when, when the scripture says, and Jesus marveled at their lack of faith, there were moments where Jesus was genuinely shocked, like, huh? I just healed a man, a 40-year-old man that was born blind, and you still don't believe? What parlor trick is that? What demons do that? You heal, you do that, you cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Oh, really? Then who do you cast them out by? Jesus is saying, look, he's blown away by the fact that we're not blown away. God is intentional. The crucifixion is specific. The resurrection is specific. It redeemed everything and everyone that happened in that scene. They take fruit of the knowledge of good and evil from the tree. So Jesus, the knowledge of good and evil, goes back on the tree. Adam was there and didn't do his job. So the second Adam is there and does his job. Your Bibles are not boring details of names and places that we'll never go and never see. It's literally intentional places, names, and activities of God for his people. We may not understand what's happening in the Old Testament, but we know where it leads. God is showing I've been doing this the whole time. 
So for us this year, as we are reminded again and again of the resurrection, this year, may we never forget the intentionality of God. And may we begin to look at our lives and say, Lord, you were intentional. You were intentional in what you did on the cross and resurrection and how you redeemed. You're just as intentional for what you do in my life. It doesn't mean we always get it. Like the disciples, it doesn't make sense to me. Doesn't mean we always like it. But we have enough evidence to know that it's true. So by the grace of God, may it be true in our lives. Now, if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, first and foremost, thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. You could have gone anywhere this morning. Somebody may have forced you to come. I'm glad you came. And I would love to meet you afterwards. But if you're not a Christian, please know that for those of us who are Christians, this is a serious day. And even if you're not a Christian, what you heard was no trickery, no play on words. Now, our church is in a series called The Supernatural Storyline of the Bible. So we're looking at the Bible with the intention of what's going on behind what we normally see. And these are things that have always been there. We're trying to grow deeper in our love and appreciation, our fascination with God. But if you're not a believer this morning, I just want you to know the Lord brought you here today so that you could at least hear this. He wanted you to see that this is not just a random moment that we just celebrate. For us, I don't know what Easter is. We know what Resurrection Sunday is. I mean, Easter is baskets and Cadbury eggs and all that stuff, which actually are pretty good. They got the cream in them, and I like them. But <laughs> if anybody has a couple, even though I don't need it, I, I, you know, I, might, I, might, I might smell it. I might slip on. <laughs> but this, for us, is serious, and we hope that you got to see a little bit more of how serious it is, that God is so intentional that he brought you here this morning so that you can intentionally hear he has a plan for your life. But it starts with you intentionally believing in Jesus Christ and acknowledging, man, this thing is, I didn't know this. This is for real. If that's you this, this morning, I'd love to talk to you. As a matter of fact, if you're a member of this church, raise your hand if you would love to talk with someone who is not a believer yet to share with them why you believe. Look around. We'd love to talk with you. We'd love to talk with you. But for those of us who are believers, let's press in. Let's press in. Now, because we're in a series, there's a lot I did not say. Because there are things that we have to see before we get there. So we'll be back, our church will be back here in a couple of months. Next week, we go back to the Tower of Babel. But for to now, for today, for today, let's stand in awe of God and find comfort that if God can be this intentional for the world, we can trust his intentions that he has for our world. Worship team, let's sing another song. Come back up and let's sing one more song. And then our pastor, Mike, is going to close us in this communion.
Matthew 26 gives us one of the accounts of the last meal Jesus had before he went to the cross. And this is what it says. Now they were eating, this is Jesus and his disciples. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink, drink of it, all of you. For this is my body of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my father's house so Jesus references his body he references his blood and then he tells them that he's not going to enjoy this meal with them again until they are with him in his father's kingdom now we've been going through this supernatural storyline of the Bible and we we learned that 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 part of the divine counsel was to include humanity but the rebellion caused that to get off track a bit We've just heard how the Lord intentionally brought it back on track. But on his way to bringing it back on track, just as sin entered the world through food, Jesus decides to have a supper with his people, and he invites them. He's inviting you. He invites us. He foreshadows that there's going to be a celebration over food when we are finally with him, when all things are consummated. So every time we take the Lord's Supper, we remember what not only what he's done, but we should remember what he invites us to. He invites us. Remember, at first it was stay away, but now it's an invitation for all to come to him. And this is what it says in Revelation 19, 9. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, these words, excuse me, these are true words of God. So as we take the elements, which are metaphorical representations of the body of Christ, the wafer is of the body of Christ and the juice, the blood, of Jesus, the meal 
is a foreshadowing of the meal where we celebrate the accomplishment of everything, where we will see clearly that this world has been judged and that the kingdom of God is reigning in reality, seen, felt, observed reality for all. Let us take the wafer, which represents the body that was broken for those who place their faith in Christ and eat. take the drink, the juice, which represents the blood that was shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins, and let us drink. Father God, we thank you for your intentionality. We thank you also for your kindness that you did not leave us as you left the angels, that you restrained us from taking part of eating the, from the tree of life until such time as Jesus made a way for us to be reconciled to you. We thank you that one day we will take our place along your side as your bride and that we will fellowship over a feast like we've never experienced before so Lord if we eat something good today let us remember that it is going to pale in comparison to what we will eat on that day because there will be so much more behind why we're eating and what we're eating so we thank you and we praise you we give you glory and honor and thank you in Jesus name amen amen and amen Remember, if you have made today the day that you want to know even more about Jesus Christ, remember those folks that raised their hands. If you are a guest, uh, remember that our welcome team is going to be in a welcome center to answer any questions you may have about the church. God bless you. Happy Resurrection Sunday. And may we live in the good of it, not only today and this week, but the coming weeks, months, and years. In Jesus' name, God bless you.